My name is Johnny, uh, one of the leaders in the church here. It's my uh, privilege to be able to uh, speak from the Bible f- to you guys for the next uh, half an hour or so. And today the passage we find ourselves in is in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 31 to 43. Whether you follow in a Bible, on your phone, or on the screen, it's completely up to you. Choices, eh? It's beautiful. It's lovely. Uh, we're going through Luke's Gospel, the third biography of Jesus uh, found in the New Testament. We've been doing that for a while, and this is where we found, find ourselves. Luke 18, 31 to 43. Let's get straight into it. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written in by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Okay, now in Luke's gospel, if you've been around with us for any time at all with this series, or have just read some of these gospels before, you'll know that healing stories happen quite regularly. Jesus heals a lot of people. And when uh, healing happens, there, is, uh, there are a couple of points usually being made. And one is the obvious one in a story like this about this blind guy getting healed. Luke's point, as he puts this in the gospels, he notices this from what, what happened, from his sources, puts it in. He wants to make the point, Jesus heals sick people, okay? Just so you don't miss that, that's here, that's one of the reasons... He's putting it here. This guy is physically blind and is healed. And uh, running through every story like this, uh, while I'm going to focus on something slightly different today, uh, is the reality. And we would uh, very much uh, shout this from the rooftops at Church Central. Jesus heals people. Did then, does now. And we would uh, have loads of people in this room and in our church who would have been healed by Jesus uh, even in the 21st century in Birmingham. Wow. So basically, whatever else I say, if you're sick or ill or anything today, Jesus can heal you. And we'd love to pray for you if that's the case. Uh, but be expecting even as we're worshipping or as we're listening to the word for that sort of stuff. However, when Luke talks about physical healings, uh, and John particularly as well, often there is also another point being made where the, 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 the physical illness that's being healed is representative of a spiritual illness as well. And we've seen that already in Luke's gospel a number of times, and he's at it again here. Because while these two stories may look completely unrelated, the two I've read to you in today's passage, actually they, uh, they show us not just one case of blindness, but two cases of blindness. Okay, Now the first one, Uh, which is actually the second one, is uh, an obvious case of blindness. You have a beggar on the road. He is blind. His eyes do not function. He cannot see Jesus. He cannot see the crowds. He couldn't see your hand if you waved it in front of his face. He's quite clearly uh, blind. However, there's a more subtle example as well. Before that, in the first part of the passage, you've got these disciples And basically, they are told by Jesus as plainly as they could possibly be told anything 
what Jesus is, what's going to happen, what, what's going to happen to Jesus uh, as they go to Jerusalem in a very short uh, space of time. And yet, even though Jesus is very clear, they end the conversation scratching their heads and say, what was he on about? No idea, completely missed that. It says in uh, verse 34, its meaning was hidden from them. In their own way, they too are significantly blind. Now, today, uh, whether you've been to Specsavers or not, uh, whether you have 2020 vision or like the guy in the story, your eyes do not function correctly, I want to tell you, if you fit two criteria, uh, this, uh, I want to talk to you about a blindness that can affect you. And the two criteria are these, are you a human being and are you alive? Good. That's fine. Good. That's for everybody here. Okay. And I want to show all of us, if you fit those two criteria, how you are afflicted to one degree or another by a real persistent spiritual blindness. And we have to work out how to deal with that in our lives. And basically, the way I'm going here, I've got no tricks up my sleeve. I'll tell you, this cure today is the same as the cure was then. I'll let you read into that, whatever you will. I'll make that very explicit later. And I'd like, though, to give you, as we go on, particularly at the end, some real practical help how to apply this blindness remedy that we see applied to this uh, physically blind guy, but to all of us in our own degrees of spiritual blindness as well. Okay, so if we take the passage to be these two stories, disciples bit at the beginning, blind bit at the end, the disciples bit really helps us look into the problem of kind of this, this blindness I've been talking about. So let's start with the problem, as we'll see the second bit is more towards the end of the solution. Okay, right, so what's the problem? What's going on with these disciples? Well, they hear Jesus' clear words, but they completely misunderstand him. Okay, in fact, they don't even misunderstand it, they just don't think he's saying anything. I don't, know, it's, I don't know if you've ever read this passage before and try to put it together in your imagination. What could have been going on in their skulls not to understand what Jesus says? I mean, it's bizarre. It, it couldn't be any clearer. But I think with hindsight as we have, looking back and knowing that this is exactly how it happened, it's quite easy to miss something that surely we can understand about why the disciples had such a problem here. Because you see, what Jesus said to them was so contrary to their deeply held beliefs about the world and actually some of their strongest desires about what they wanted the world to be like that they literally could not hear what he was saying. So just a couple of things. These guys uh, would have had very strong beliefs about the Messiah. Okay, about the Messiah, you've seen the Matrix, the idea of Neo is a kind of Messiah idea. He's the one who was to come. Okay? Taken very much from the Jew- Jewish uh, people had belief very much like that, not kind of science fiction uh, film, but in real life. Like they would have, for the prophets in the Old Testament, said, there's someone coming who's going to rescue Israel. The Messiah, okay, the chosen one. And they, uh, these guys have already clocked Jesus. They've, they've said, well, we believe you are the Messiah. But what they thought the Messiah would do was quite set. For many of these guys, one of the key roles of the Messiah would have been political. Basically, the Romans are ruling over the land, which is very important to the Jewish people and the people of God themselves. And the Messiah would come, boot out the Romans and reinstate the nation state of Israel. And that was key. So when Jesus then says to them, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Actually, they're going to humiliate, spit on me, flog me, and kill me. It's like short circuit in the brain. What are we going to do? Are we going to get rid of these deep beliefs about the world, or are we going to listen to Jesus? Actually, you might think, oh, that's all very technical. 
don't really know about being a first century Jew. Well, this one probably resonates with you a little more. I, I would have thought they'd also have some pretty set beliefs about death as well at this point. And uh, I guess they'd be similar to ours uh, today, actually, in that belief about death they would have held would be when someone dies, they tend to stay dead. That seems to be reasonably common sense. That would be in the background of what's going on. And so when Jesus then says, as plain as you like, oh yeah, by the way, on the third day I'll rise again from the dead. Okay, they're like, what? what's happening here? This is, this is totally against what I know about the world. And obviously, in the, this case, they refuse to hear Jesus. And it, when I say refuse to hear, it's not even that they, it passed through a rational kind of part of their brain. They just couldn't hear him because of those sort of things that were going on. Imagine the conversation afterwards as, as they go, what, what was he on about there then? Would involve a lot of those sort of rabbit ears apostrophes. They're going to flog him and spit on him and then he's going to rise. Yeah, okay. Who knows what he's on about? Maybe one day we come clear. Let's go and get the Romans. I mean, that's sort of probably the conversation afterwards. Sounds a bit like Asterix, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, but they, they, completely, they completely miss it. Uh, and in their own way, these guys are blind. And uh, this theme actually, well, hasn't been at the forefront in this chapter. It's definitely rumbling on the background. This is in, in Luke's mind. It's no wonder that after this, the blind beggar story comes up. Because for the last two stories, this blindness has been... Uh, uh, at least in the background of what Luke's been on about. So uh, Luke 18, 15 to 17, two stories ago, you see the disciples, again, I'm afraid of the, the, the uh, dense ones here. Uh, they see a crowd of people around Jesus and they see a group in that crowd who they think are obstacles to the kingdom. And so they go away, no, stop them coming. Jesus is like, what are, you, what are you on about? Let the children come to me and don't stop them. They're not obstacles to the kingdom. They're models of the kingdom. So I was like this, oh, okay, oh, we didn't see that at all. It's a blindness there. In the last week when Jonathan preached on the rich young ruler, remember the story? Rich guy comes to Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, how are you doing with the commandments? Oh, don't worry about them, got them sorted since I was little. Absolutely fine on them. One statement from Jesus proves the guy hasn't even done the first one. And what's going on? He's blind, completely blind. He looks at himself, he sees someone who's perfectly following the law. He's not even doing the first one. He's blind. It's going on all through uh, this passage. And in all these cases, the people's prejudices, assumptions, and sin are blinding them to reality. Now, Luke is not the first person or the only person ever to pick up on this blindness that seems to persist in the human condition. Philosophers and psychologists have written and discussed this sort of thing for many, many years. And the idea as put in in those sort of worlds would be this. That although we think that we have direct access to the world around us through our senses, actually we don't. So we think, oh yeah, yeah, we take in what we see and what we hear and what we touch and smell and taste uh, and that's that. And then we work out the data and we check out the evidence rationally and objectively and we come to a conclusion. No, people said, no, that's not exactly how it works at all because all of that information from our senses is actually filtered through our fundamental beliefs about the world and our desire for reality to be a certain way in such a way that when things clash with those things, sometimes we just don't see them. That's so an extreme example, but let's take the example of, of uh, people who are influenced very much by romantic desire. So the young man who uh, sees, with his eyes, he sees the girl is flirting with him. But in reality, all she's doing is swatting a fly out of her hair, okay? 
But he sees it. Why? It's not what he sees in his eyes. It's the desire. What about the young lady who listens? She hears the words as her boyfriend sits with her and breaks up with her, but leaves the conversation thinking, he loves me more than ever. We're just taking a break. She heard the words, but she was blind to it. She was deaf to it. And in both cases, the, the desires of the people involved blind them to what's really happening. Actually, a similar thing surely is true for all of us. We filter what we sense, what we see, through our desires and beliefs about the world. And if those desires and beliefs prove to be untrue, they don't match up with reality, well, actually what we do is we develop profound blind spots all around us. Okay? And that would be true for, for all of us, even if we're not star-crossed lovers in that sort of sense. What does the Bible say about this stuff then? Well, actually, you'll see... It agrees generally with the picture, but it makes it much more specific as regards the content and the, the actual areas of blindness that we have as humans. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, Paul puts it like this. The God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see what? Can they not see economic factors or uh, how country we run? No, not, people who aren't Christians can be incredibly wise in all sorts of things. What can't they see? Well, they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil has blinded the minds of those who don't know Jesus, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. We all would have been in that bracket at one point or another. Actually, the Bible's quite clear. The devil has been doing this since the very word go, since the start of things. In back Garden of Eden, it's the first temptation the devil brings. He comes to them and he says, hey, you see that tree? It's not just any tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's important. He says, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from that tree. Whereas God said no, but you can eat from it. Because if you do, you'll be like God. Okay, what, what's, what's going on there with those two things? Well, what's happening there is the devil is, has spotted something. And I don't know how it worked then in the garden, whether it was just a kind of grain of something or a seed of something. But he spotted, there's a desire these guys have. That Keep on your toes, anything could happen. Uh, there's a desire these guys have I'm going to play on. What's that desire? Well, what's the situation that Adam and Eve woke up one day to find themselves in? Well, the situation was this that they woke up in a brilliant garden and all that, but reality for them was defined by somebody else. They were created, and everything around them was created by God. So God defined reality. He defined what was real and what wasn't real. So they woke up with that, and also he defined the categories of good and evil, what was right and what was wrong. God defined reality. But even in them, there was this kernel that the snake played upon. They thought, wait a minute. I don't want him to define reality. Why can't I define reality? I want to be in charge of what's going on, what's, what's right and what's wrong, and even what's real and what's unreal. That's what the devil played on. It was this desire for self-determination. And therefore, when the, the devil played on that, as we sinned, that's become a, the core, almost motivational factor for us as human beings, the thing that we want the most of all. And just on that note, if anyone's watching the news this week, that might help you to understand what's going on in the world around us. We're all like this. If you spot it in yourself, we can see it around us. And most of the things happening would be this desire for self-determination coming through. Choice is the key thing. Of course it is, because we want to choose, we want to determine. And we don't want anything like our biology or God's creation to restrict what we want to be. 
It's the desire at the heart of all of us. And therefore, when you've got the gospel then, the good news of Christianity, which is based back to the Garden of Eden on a God who made us and will call us to account for what we've done, with this desire raging inside us, we can't see it. We miss it because it just clashes. It's like the disciples, we don't want to hear that, so we won't hear it. We don't want to hear about God. We want to be in charge, so we can't see the good news of Christianity at all. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this very explicit, and he says, I think more of the passage can't there that I'm going to read to you, but he basically talks about people, not those who don't know the truth or don't come to the right conclusions, but he says, we're those who suppress the truth. Um, I think there's a slide up in a minute. Joe's next one. It might appear for you. I'll read it anyway. Uh, we're those who suppress the truth, since what may be known about God, he writes, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. I saw this uh, quite clearly when we did Bolting Big Questions last time around. Uh, each year we, we run a course called Bolting Big Questions. So it really does what it says on the tin. Bolties don't come in tins, but you can see what I mean. Uh, we, we have Bolted together and we, asked, we focus on the big questions of, of life. Reality, is there a God about suffering, all that sort of stuff? We, these are big questions. We want to dialogue about these sort of things. Okay, and one guy asked the question. We have a Q&A session at the end with the speaker and the audience. And he said, okay then, but really... Why should I be expected to believe in God when he's given us so little evidence for his existence? Even if there is some evidence, there's so little. He couldn't expect us to come to this massive conclusion on the basis of this small amount of evidence he's put in the world. And my answer, if I remember correctly, went along these lines, although possibly slightly more diplomatic than this, I hope, maybe. Um, My answer is this. Well, think about this for a second. Put yourself on the other side of the coin. If God is really there... Couldn't it be argued, actually, that everything is evidence for his existence? There is a universe. You are alive. Your human experience is, at the very core of it, believes in an objective morality, in a feeling of deep significance, that I am more valuable than a hedgehog, okay? That's in and any other animal, for that matter. And nobody has ever given a watertight uh, explanation of why those things exist without resorting to creator God. Everything calls out there is a God. The heavens, it says in, in the Psalms, declare the glory of God. But there's so little evidence. What's going on? Do we just have a difference of opinion? No, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We're blinded by desires and assumptions about the world. We want to self-determine. We don't want to see God. And so we can't see his fingerprints anywhere. It's a big problem. Fortunately, there is a solution to the problem. And uh, for the solution, we start to move into the second story uh, in this passage. Okay? Uh, the solution to our spiritual blindness is exactly the same as the solution to this beggar's physical blindness. And his name is Jesus. Now, Jesus... I'm sure you'll know, if you read the Gospels, is pretty decent with eyes. Pretty good with him. Make a good optician. Uh, he healed at least four blind people in his ministry and a number of other occasions. It, I know you get these bits, it just lumps them all together. Jesus healed loads of people, some blind people, some lame people, that. So I'm assuming there's loads of blind people being healed around the place. Okay. Now, while this would have been a great deal for the blind people who could now see on the basis of what Jesus did... Uh, These things, as I mentioned, are clearly presented to us as a sign that he could deal with the deeper types of blindness that I've been talking about. And sometimes that's implicit, like in this passage here. If you want a more explicit one, go to uh, uh, John chapter 9. We're not going to go today, but you see he makes this point absolutely without question towards the end of that passage, that he's healing someone physically as a sign. It's about opening your eyes in a different way. Okay? 
Now actually, in the Old Testament, the prophesied Messiah was always going to have this characteristic. Isaiah, probably the the main prophet in the Old Testament, uh, he prophesied lots about this coming Messiah, and he often came back to this characteristic, this eye-opening characteristic of the Messiah. Isaiah 42, verse 7. The Messiah will come to open eyes that are blind, he says, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 9, verse 2. This is a famous one. We read it a lot at Christmas. Isaiah predicting the future says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. It's like different imagery, darkness and light, but it's exactly the same uh, thing. Jesus himself presents his ministry in the same terms. So John 3, 19 to 21, Jesus says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. What do you mean? You mean it's summer? Like Andy said before, and it was a bit dingy before. No, 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 light. I am the light, Jesus is saying. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is the light. He is the one who helps us see. He's the eye opener. Whether he's healed you of cataracts or he's just come in and removed the blinkers for your eyes so you can see the light of the gospel. Now, we often... I guess, as Christians, would praise Jesus for all sorts of roles that he fulfills for us. And that's a good thing. I wonder for you, what's the, the role Jesus fulfills for you that you thank him for most? Okay? Maybe it's not one clear one, but there could be lots. The, Jesus the forgiveness bringer, or, or Jesus the heaven unlocker, or the comforter, or the lifter of our heads. Well, another massive one presented in the Bible is Jesus the eye-opener, the one who helps Blind, deluded fools like me actually get a glimpse of what's really going on in reality. Begin to see something of what is going on behind the news headlines. Even seeing who we really are. And amazingly, who God really is. It's what Jesus does for us. It's an incredible thing. We need to thank and praise him for it. Dwell on it every day. There's one more thing I need to say before we apply this practically to ourselves. Because there's an assumption that this might all be leading to in your mind here. And the assumption might go like this. You might be thinking, okay, I get it. So uh, people generally uh, who don't know Jesus are blind. And therefore, the cure is becoming a Christian. And therefore, once you become a Christian, you always understand everything. And you never misunderstand anything again in your whole life. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, okay. We're all on that page. Let's go then. <laughs> now, our experience would tell us, anyone, whether you're a Christian here or not, if you've ever met a Christian, you'll know that's not true. That's not the case. And that the Bible uh, prepares us for this rather unwelcome revelation in a number of different ways. Just think for a second on this group of people who are so blind in the passage we've seen. Okay, these aren't just some guys wandering about, okay, who've never heard any wisdom in their lives. They've spent at least two years with the Son of God incarnate, like literally brushing up against him. They'd have heard him teach from a kind of platform. They did particular platforms, but from a boat or something like that. But they would have all asked him questions. They would have had dinner with him. They would have spent personal time with him. They would have seen him from very close quarters. They'd even recognized he was the Messiah, you know. That's a big thing. In many ways, these guys knew Jesus far better than the most mature Christian in this room today. Yet they still had significant spiritual blind spots over and over again in the Gospels, even towards the end, even as Jesus is going to die. They just don't get it. We've got to remember, this is the third time they'd been told that Jesus had explained this to them, sat them down with really slow lips, 
I'm going to die. Okay? They even told him three times. They still don't get it. They're blind. They'd known Jesus. I suppose you could argue, you could say, yeah, but they couldn't fully know because Jesus hadn't died and risen again yet, had he? So like, for us, Christians, on the other side of the cross and empty tomb, it's not the same for us. We couldn't be blind. That would be a ridiculous thing to say. Listen to this. This is what Jesus says uh, to a group of Christians just like us uh, on this side of the cross and empty tomb in Revelation chapter 1. Okay? This is to a church. Revelation 1, 17 to 18. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve. It's like ointment, not lip salve. Don't put lip salve in your eyes, by the way, but it's like kind of that ointment for your eyes and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Let's do a church, do a group of Christians, okay? So the Laodicean church, and believe me, look at the passage, they had issues, these guys. They really did have issues. We're not going to look into all those today. All we need to note now, though, is that it is possible to be a Christian after Jesus' death and resurrection and for Jesus to say, you're blind. That's possible. You know, I think this has never been as apparent for me as it is at this present time, Okay? Christians have always disagreed on things. I mean, of course they have. But at the moment, it's become pretty silly, I'd, I'd argue. You can have one outspoken Christian leader over here who will spot something going on in society and say, guys, this is bad. It's a sign of God's judgment, and you should resist it. Okay? And then, in the same breath, another Christian leader over here will say, hey, it's the same thing. This is good. It's a sign of God's blessing, and you should embrace it. What do we do with that? What do we do is we take sides or just sit in the middle, what's going on here? But we can say one thing for absolutely sure in a situation where that's happening so often. One of those people is blind. They can't both be true. One of them is blind. One of them has at least got significant blind spots in that area. So while becoming a Christian is bound to improve your spiritual eyesight significantly. We suddenly see the light of the gospel. It doesn't mean we should become complacent to the possibility of significant blind spots in our vision as Christians. After all, our desire for self-determination, to define the world according to our desires and needs, while Jesus changed our heart, that never goes away until we die. That's always there. You'll, You'll know that. It's always cropping up when you're reading the Bible Jesus is saying, this is clearly how I want you to live. And you go, who are you to tell me what to do? I want to do all this. It happens to all of us. However long we've been a Christian. So we mature, we shake that off and say, sorry, Lord. No, your will be done. But no, it's still in us. And so we've got to listen very carefully, every one of us, about how to come back to Jesus to apply this salve onto our eyes. And that's what we'll look at just as we finish now. Uh, don't worry, we've done all the hard work. So we go into the blind beggar story. We're not going to go exegesis of every verse. We're going to take a bit of a larger kind of big picture approach to this story. But uh, I've got two things. If we're thinking, how then could Jesus help us in this situation and continue to help us? How can we apply the salve of Jesus onto our uh, eyes with this tendency of blindness? Two things we can see from this story. The first thing is this. We need to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. We need to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. Look at this beggar. Look at the example he sets for us. Sitting there, 
He hears a crowd going by. Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth. He's heard something about this guy. Shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A few of the people in the crowd, zip it, you. He doesn't doesn't want you getting in his way. He's a celebrity, this Jesus. Like, be quiet. What does he do? Does he go, hi, Jesus, anyone? Uh, Do the hand. Oh, he's gone. Okay, sorry about that. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't know. Probably not with that shrill tone. Yeah, I think it would have been. I think it would be more than that. Okay. This guy is desperate. He's clearly desperate, and we can understand that. He's blind. He doesn't need telling. You know, and he said, I think you're blind. I don't know if that's quite true. No, he knows he's blind. He can't see anything. It, it defines his life. It's humbled him. It, it's, it's the one thing in his life he would like to be fixed. And he's heard something about this Jesus of Nazareth that I don't know why he's heard. I don't know how much he believes. But maybe, just maybe, this guy might be able to fix my eyes. And so he desperately throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. Listen, I imagine there may well be some of you guys here today who aren't Christians. And I, you may have disagreed with almost everything I've said in this talk. You know? I mean, I'd love to be around at the end to talk to you. I'm afraid I'm going to have to go to the next site, but please talk to others. We'd like to talk about that stuff. Okay? But there's still, even with that said, there might be this feeling of desperation welling up within you. It's in a lot of us nowadays that this vulnerability of a society which has been built around spin and, and we can't see what's really happening and everything's moving so fast we start feeling completely lost. We were told five years ago, this is what you should believe and think. And within five years you're told, oh yeah, if you believe that you're an idiot or a monster. I mean, what are we supposed to do in a world like this? And for you, you might be feeling lost. You might be feeling like you, you are spinning around. You, you don't know what to do, and you're feeling desperate and aware that you can't handle and process this society and this world on your own. You know what? I don't know what you think of Jesus. But even if in your heart there's a maybe, just, just maybe this guy could help me. No one else can help me. It's all spin. I'd recommend you crying out to him. You don't know me uh, from Adam, I would imagine, if that's the case. But if it's any, worth anything, in my experience, Jesus loves to answer the cries of mercy of blind people. Loves it. He answered mine. And he continues to do that daily. So the first thing we need to do then to get the, the salve of Jesus onto our eyes is to recognize we have a problem here. It's easy for this guy, not so easy for us. Remember, Jesus comes to me and says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus often does that for us, actually. And if you think to yourself, some interesting points in the talk today, but that's probably about other people, isn't it? For me, I stand on the mountaintop. I see it all as it really is. I have objective knowledge of the whole world. It doesn't doesn't me. I know the mind of God. I've been a Christian for at least 30 years. If that's the case for you, you're not going to then say to Jesus, I want to see. And you know what? He won't apply his salve to your eyes. It's as simple as that. I'll be honest with you. I fear for you in that case. Because however clever you are, or however well-educated you are, however long you've been a Christian, without humbly coming to Jesus constantly in this area, you could be in a situation where you completely miss what's going on under your nose, what's going on in our society, what's happening in the church, even what's happening in your own heart. Now listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be confident 
in the light that Jesus has shone on us. I'm not saying, oh, we can't know anything. We're so stuck in this existential trauma. I'm not saying that. We don't throw everything up in the air and say, oh, we can't really be trust anything. No, if you know Jesus has opened your eyes and opened your eyes to the light of the gospel, you can trust those things. But there's something about being a Christian that's a trust and a confidence in the truth that comes with a measure of humility that as we need to come to Jesus each day, because even with the light of the gospel shining on us, our eyes tend to be blind. We need him to help us. We throw ourselves on his mercy. It's the first thing. Secondly, uh, we let Jesus come near to us. It's the second thing, final thing. We let Jesus come near to us. Jesus, before he treats this guy of his blindness, before he cures his blindness, Jesus uh, has him brought near to him. In this case, the, the man is, is, it seems is carried to Jesus, but Jesus comes near. He doesn't shout from a distance, Oi, yeah, here's a healing, catch it! Whee! He doesn't do that, he comes near. For us, actually, I think Jesus would say to many of us, look, Jesus, I need your help here. He'd say, look, I'm there. I'm, I'm available to you. You need to bring me near to you. I'm here. I'm, I'm right in front of you. But there are things you can do to bring Jesus near to you, to apply this salve onto your uh, own eyes. Jesus went back to heaven 2,000 years ago. But his presence is with us today in, I think, two very practical ways. There are others, I think. But these two practical ways, are, I think, are very relevant here. The first one is through the Bible the Bible. It's no coincidence that Jesus talked of the Bible as the Word of God, and John talked of Jesus as the Word of God. Jesus endorses this whole book. I wish at this point I had a big dusty King James here. This whole book on this app in here, okay? He endorses the whole book, and he'd say to you today, you want me? I'm in here. I'm in the Bible. Jesus loved the Old Testament, He lives in the Gospels. He commissioned his followers with the power of the Spirit to write the epistles. It all, the whole book comes with Jesus' stamp of approval as much as if he'd signed every page himself. If we're going to avoid spiritual blindness, we must know and love this book. Now, I'm not talking here about ticking off something on your spiritual to-do list to make yourself feel like you're doing a bit better in your Christian life. I'm talking about the difference between stumbling half-blind through life and being able to see. It's a massive difference. For some of you, this does mean starting to read the Bible yourself. I know there'll be some here who your diet of the Word would come now. This is how it comes. You, you, you enjoy the sermons. And, but actually, really, this is where you get the Bible. I challenge you. You need to get into the book yourself. You need to get into yourself. I encourage you to start doing that if that's where you are on your journey there. For others, I'd encourage you to come up with a plan about your Bible reading. A plan is a bit much. It's just that thing you do, isn't it? No, have a plan. I want to ask you a question. What is your plan? Talk about it on the way home. Talk about a dinner today. Even if you think, plan? I don't know what he's on about. Then just email me and I'll tell you. What's your plan? Are you going through the Bible from cover to cover at the moment? I am. I'm in Jeremiah. It's depressing. I'll tell you that for starters. Looking forward to the New Testament. Anyway, uh, are you doing that? Are you doing a Bible in a year scheme that jumps around a little bit more? Are you going for a New Testament letter verse by verse? Could be something else. Doesn't really matter what it is. But what's your plan? Where are you with your plan? Again, if you think, we have plans for, for big things, like where we're going on holiday next year or what we do with our money. We don't have plans for reading the Bible. Really? We're just casual then, are we? 
casual about whether our eyes just close over as the world outside just takes charge of our minds. This is serious business. Some of you, I know, will find reading the Bible boring. I know that's the case. It's okay. Some of it is boring. It's fine. We can say that stuff. God knows it. When he inspired Leviticus, he knew it was boring. It's important, but boring. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's going to laugh now. I I think that's non-controversial. But anyway, (laughs) it is boring sometimes, but... How about making it a challenge? Why, why don't you spruce up? So I'll just read my three chapters today. Make a challenge. I mean, lads, for you guys. I know we're, we're silly, aren't we? I mean, some of you ladies will be like this. Um, we, we make challenges and competitions out of everything, don't we? Like, what's this? Sport, whatever. Why don't we make challenges to each other about things that matter? Challenge your friends. Who can be the first to memorize Romans 1? Oh, that's a bit tricky. Yeah, that's what a challenge is. A challenge is tricky, okay? Who can do it the quickest, okay? I want to lay down the gauntlet for you. I have memorized Romans 1. I challenge you. Come to me. Read it faster than me. Come to me. Johnny, Romans 1. The wrath of God has been removed from heaven because of the godless and wickedness of men. We can do that. That's fun. You know, we can do that. Beat me. I'll lay down the gauntlet for you. What, what is he doing? That's so silly. But pride will sneak in, all that stuff. You know what? I'll stoop lower than that to get the salve of Jesus on your eyes. Because if you memorize Romans 1, there's some salve there, you know? And that's not Boots brand salve. That's proper. That's proper, like, you know, shiny stuff, but for your eyes when the metaphor breaks down. Anyway, <laughs> the Bible, number one. Final thing then, this ointment comes in two sections. There's another way we can bring Jesus near to us, and it's through the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his followers that he would never leave or forsake them. Then he left and forsake them and went to heaven. And unless Jesus was lying, we have to be able to think, well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is very clear. About a month and a half later, he came back on Pentecost in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples knew what was going on here because they call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is with us today through his Spirit. And if we're going to avoid the the blind spots that beset us more and more in our lives, we need to learn to stoke up a relationship with the Spirit. We need to stir up the work of the Spirit in our lives. We need to love the Holy Spirit. It's been an argument ongoing in the church, I think since pretty much the beginning, uh, regarding the Bible and the Spirit. People say it's things like this, are you a Bible church or a Holy Spirit church? Anyone ever heard that or asked that before? It's always either or, are you this or this? It's not an either or, it's both and. There's probably no church out there that's a Bible or Holy Spirit church. I hope not anyway. We want to be both. Of course we want to be both. While the Bible certainly salved to blind eyes, Wisdom and understanding does not come just from being a bookworm and dry theological study. That's true as well. An example, Psalm 119. It's the longest of all the Psalms. Okay, try memorizing that. That'd be fun. I think my dad's tried that one, actually. But anyway, uh, it's really long. It goes on for ages and ages. But it's written by someone who loved God's word, loved it. And uh, they would have agreed with my last point. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, verse 105, for example, uh, says, Your word, talking to God, is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. This writer loved the Bible. Knew the Bible opens my eyes. Okay? It helps me see things. But the same writer wrote this in verse 18. So it's, a, it's a verse, actually, that every time I come to God's word, I, I pray this before I start, okay? So he says this, 
open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. What's the point there? The point there is, even though he loves the Bible, even though he looks and he sees good things, that he knows he could be like those disciples. He could look and see the words on the page and completely miss it unless God works in him and opens his eyes. We read the Bible in the power of the Spirit. If we're not stirring up the Spirit in us at all times and developing our relationship with him through prayer, through worship, through uh, speaking in tongues, through desiring spiritual gifts, through obeying the promptings of the Spirit, and any other way we can, we could read the Bible and completely miss what it says. Anyone who's ever done a theology degree, I'm sure, will understand this is true. Some of the people who know most about the Bible They see the words on the page. They completely miss what God's saying through it. I know that there'll be people here who lean one way or another on this kind of Bible Holy Spirit thing that's going on. Apologies if you weren't at the Callis Festival because I don't think this example is going to hit you so well. I think there's a really easy way to tell which way you lean if you're at the Catalyst Festival. For example, if you were through the singing time and just staring into space, checking your clock, thinking, when's Terry Verger, Andrew Wilson coming on? Probably on the Bible side, probably imagine. If on the other hand, it's going to the end of the worship, and they go, Matt Parch says, can you all sit down now? We're moving on. You're like, what? And you have to just stand there to fight with your hands in the air. I'm staying here. Bring the band back on. You may well be on the Holy Spirit side, possibly. I'm just, it's a crude analogy, but it probably works. Um, now, we'll all have our preferences, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, my advice to you would be this. Actually, there are two eye ointments here. See where you are and make sure you balance them out. We need the word. We also need the spirit. And I can't prescribe exactly what that means for you all. But we've got to go for that because this is an important business. Jesus comes still today to help us in our blindness. One day we will know in full. Now we know in part. And the day that we see things clearly, totally clearly, and we see him as he is, will be after the day Uh, our hearts stop beating unless Jesus comes back before. Until then, we must apply the salve of Jesus to those eyes through the Bible and the Spirit as much as we can. I'd like to see the end of this story reenacted in our lives as a church and over so many blind spots for us to be able to say, like Jesus said to this beggar in the story, over the church central, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Sounds all right, doesn't it? Yeah, let's pray.